Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And since we're kind of in a training phase on this worship, again, dialogical means we respond to God's Word, and in this case, uh, with a resounding amen. And it would be wonderful if our church could get to a point where it's like uh, in the early church, they said their amen sounded like rolling thunder. Okay, that's uh, the kind of thing we see in the book of Revelation. And so uh, we cherish God's Word, and how we respond to it shows that. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken from her. Amen. Amen. Father God, we love your word, and it is our desire to grow and be sanctified by that word, to glorify your name in our responses. And so we pray that you would receive this aspect of our worship through the merits of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. may be seated. First Corinthians 10, verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, which implies everything can glorify God, including buying a Macintosh or changing diapers, which ought not to be equivalented there, uh, <laughs> taking a shower, hoeing you know, out in the yard. Everything we do can glorify God. A carpenter serves God just as truly as I do when I'm up here preaching. Now, how can I say that? It's because the first 30 years of Jesus' life were spent as a carpenter, and I do not believe that God the Father would have had Jesus spending all of those years doing that if he did not think that carpentry was a sacred calling. Okay, He elevated that. In fact, uh, God sent Jesus uh, going through all of the stages. He was a child. He experienced that. Why? It's childhood is so important to God. Uh, He experienced what it was like to lose a father and to have to be the breadwinner and to support uh, his mother and his uh, siblings, to be basically the head of the home there. What he was doing through Christ's life was he was elevating all of these things that some people think of as secular as really being sacred, as being spiritual acts of service to the Lord. And that is very foreign thinking to many evangelicals because they have bought into what Francis Schaeffer calls a sacred-secular dichotomy. The sacred, oh, that'd be things like witnessing, praying, going to church. And the secular, well, that'd be things like plumbing and hoeing your garden, other things like that. And they really don't see how God relates to the secular part of life. And uh, they would look to a passage like this And they would say, okay, see, this is the difference between secular Martha and separated Mary. And uh, I really do find it uh, kind of offensive, some of the books that I read relating to how to be a Christian at work. What's the first command that God gives to mankind? 
God's commands are not be secular. Um, first command was be fruitful and multiply. And we serve God by being fruitful and multiplying. What's the second, third, and fourth commandments? You know, fill the earth, subdue it, uh, take dominion over every last thing that's in the earth. Now, in contrast to the way you see the Scriptures relating everything in submission under God and being an act of service to God, what uh, many evangelical... I, I've read a number of books that have said, okay, the way you serve God on your job is by witnessing. And uh, uh, I, I'm thinking to myself, okay, you can, you can pray on your job and still be a bad witness because you're lazy, you're not being the best plumber that you could be or whatever. And your prayers do not make your, your work spiritual. Giving money that you've earned through that job does not make that somehow spiritual. Now, those things on their own need to be offered up to God and need to glorify God. But your job as a job needs to glorify God and, and serve Him. Colossians 3, 22 through 25 says that the menial labors that the slaves, the Roman slaves engaged in Every bit of it could be spiritual service to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I think when you do the best job you can as an accountant or as a nurseryman or as some other employment, you are pleasing the Lord every bit as much as Jesus pleased the Lord with His carpentry or with His preaching. The job as a job can be dominion service. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up and laying this groundwork is because there are people who take this passage and they, they say this really justifies the sacred-secular dichotomy. And there's whole branches of the church that say we need to have a sacred-secular dichotomy. What I hope to show this morning is this passage uh, gives us a very important key to knowing how to glorify God in absolutely everything that we do. We can work to His glory, rest to His glory, do recreation to His glory, and it nails on the head the one thing, it's the sole issue that makes the difference between serving Christ on your job and serving your job on your job. It makes all the difference in the world. And I think it's that little phrase, one thing is needed. Not, obviously not everybody interprets it the way I do, so I'm going to give you a, a little history of interpretations on this passage. Two early Greek fathers said that what Christ was teaching here was against gluttony and that only one bowl of food was needed, and Mary chose that because she wanted to spend time with Christ rather than being a, a glutton. Uh, I think it's ridiculous, but there's a, a couple of modern interpreters actually take that approach as well. So it's against gluttony. You only need one bowl of soup. Another variation is that Mary had hogged uh, the best piece of the food for herself, and Jesus was saying, let her alone. She can have this best piece of food. Now, I think that is obviously wrong as well. Roman Catholic scholars have frequently appealed to this verse to say that the secluded contemplative life in the monastery or in the convent is much to be preferred to the secular kind of work that a married person is going to have to engage in. And so they will say, it's okay to be a secular Martha, but it's much better to be a separated Mary. Because your whole life then can be devoted to the Lord instead of just little parts of your life being devoted to Him. So only one thing is needed. They interpret it as the meditative life of separation from the world. And on the other hand, I have in my library a couple of books where some feminists argue that God wanted to liberate women from the shackles of the home and break down the traditional division of labor between men and women, not so that she could go to a convent, 
but so that she could do the things that men traditionally have done. And so Mary is the liberated feminist. Uh, one, one lady said that uh, what this passage does is it liberates women from the shackles of the kitchen so that they can go out and pursue a career. Now, I hope you can see that's eisegesis, reading into the passage big time. And before we look at the conflict, I want to give you a heads up on where I'm going so you're not guessing throughout this whole sermon what, 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 what I'm about. But first of all, this passage does not say that Mary was liberated from the kitchen. She was liberated from serving her job to serving the Lord in her work and in her rest. And that her job involved managing the home can be is hinted at in verse 39. If you look at the, the little word also there, it says Mary also sat at Jesus' feet implying with that word also that she did two things, okay? She served just like Martha did, and she also sat at Jesus' feet. That's what the also there uh, is implying. And so what Jesus did in this passage is He was giving us a key as to how to glorify God in both our work and in our devotion. He's giving a perspective both on rest and work, busyness and devotions. And if you have this one needed thing, you will glorify God in everything you do, including when you're sleeping, uh, snoring on your bed at night. Now, let me set a bit of context here so that you can understand why Martha had a temporary lapse. Martha and Mary are quite different sisters, uh, different in many ways, and I don't think we should look down on either one. While Martha had a temporary lapse in terms of her stewardship, uh, it is clear that they both loved the Lord. In fact, in John chapter 11, Martha gives the clearest testimony about the person and work of Christ anywhere in the, in, in the New Testament prior to Christ's um, uh, resurrection. It's even more clear than Peter's testimony. So you can't tell me that Martha doesn't know about the Lord, cherish the Lord, know her theology. I think she was a student of the Word. And before we look at what went wrong in Martha's flare-up, and there was something that went wrong here, I think it would be helpful to do a little bit of study on their backgrounds and personalities, and almost everybody agrees uh, that they did indeed have quite different personalities. Mary appears to be more aesthetic and emotionally sensitive uh, person, whereas Martha is the much more practical, outgoing, managerial, get busy and get things done uh, type of a person. And Martha was the kind who could very easily fall into the modern rat race syndrome where you're so busy and overwhelmed with all of the things you can't take the time to slow down and smell the roses and sip on a cup of tea with uh, your, your neighbor, you know, and just relax a little bit. Very easy for her to fall into that. And almost every book I have would probably agree with this description from Frances Vandervelde. She said, Martha was a good manager and hard worker, and her home was always spotlessly clean and attractive. Martha was the kind of woman we would make a chairman of an important committee or president of a ladies' group. Not a project would fail. No committee would lag with managing Martha as chairman. No other banquets were held like the kind Martha supervised. All of Bethany knew how capable she was, and when they needed advice or help with a supper or village project, they called on her and she spared neither time nor energy, for she was a generous, able woman. And the reference to this village project is taken straight from John chapter 12, where Simon, the former leper, is wanting to have this big banquet just to celebrate, and he gets Martha to manage it. So she's a very, very capable uh, person. 
She was also a person who had no problem with speaking her mind and shooting from the hip. And she does so here. And she does so again in John chapter 11, where she rebukes Christ for not having come earlier. And then uh, later on, she tells Jesus, who wants the stone rolled away from the tomb, uh, you know, oh, now he, he's going to stink. You can't do that. She's not the type of person to let Jesus find out for herself. OK, she's the one who's always in control, moving things forward uh, the way that they need to be. And so she has the strength of being transparent and telling you exactly what she means. No deviousness in, in her character here. But she has the weakness of being too blunt and too controlling sometimes. And that was a weakness she was going to need to work on. So there were differences of personality. And I want to emphasize strongly that he was not saying that Martha had to have Mary's personality. He was not saying that at all. There are some people who think everybody has to do things exactly the way that I do it. And uh, they want everybody stamped out like a, a cookie cutter type of a Christianity. But God delights in the variety. That's why he creates such a variety of personalities uh, amongst uh, his people. Now, true, she needed to sanctify her personality. She needed to submit it under the controlling and leading of the Holy Spirit. There were some rough edges that needed to be, you know, kind of uh, ground off. And her personality lent itself to being much more easily falling into the problem that she does here. But he's not saying get rid of your personality. Uh, not at all. They also had different resources. And the reason I say this is because this was Martha's house. And so she probably has different ideas on how we're going to manage this thing than Mary does. I don't doubt at all she had different gifts and different um, abilities than Mary did. So they're drawing on different resources. They also have different views of responsibility. Each of these women would be able to quite easily justify what they were doing from the Old Testament. I think we are making a big mistake if we are saying that Jesus did not want Martha uh, to be involved in hospitality. And I think too many people miss the point. He does not rebuke her for her hospitality, not at all. Uh, he, I think he loved the fact she was willing to extend hospitality. There's three words here you can underline that she is being rebuked for. Distracted, worried, and troubled. Okay, those are the things that were the problem. Not the hospitality. It was that she was distracted, she was worried, and she was troubled. She was becoming too emotional in the process of engaging in hospitality. So what I want to do just for a second here is show hospitality and what Mary was doing and sitting at Jesus' feet. Both of those could be justified. First of all, hospitality. It would have been unthinkable to not extend hospitality back in, in those days. And I think it should be unthinkable for us not to extend it. And verse 39, it implies that Mary had been serving as well. We already mentioned that word also. So Martha was engaged in hospitality. Mary also sat at Jesus' feet. So she did two things. She did both. But uh, what Martha was engaged in here in, in terms of household work, uh, Mary engaged in as well. John chapter 12, Mary is serving in hospitality in that chapter, and it is part and parcel of the Christian life. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we are admonished to extend hospitality to strangers. Let me give you some New Testament scriptures. Hebrews 13.2, do not forget to extend hospitality. Now, he's saying that to everyone, even to the singles, even to the little children. 
you know, that you don't own your own home. But he's saying, don't forget to extend hospitality. Why? You children can be welcoming in the way in which you relate to other people. You can make them feel at home or you can make them feel like they're not really wanted. Um, Luke 14, Christ told the crowds not only to extend hospitality to their friends and relatives, but also to people who probably, unlikely, will they be returning the favor to you. Titus 1.8 indicates that an elder's wife should be engaged in hospitality and given to hospitality. Why? It's not because she's a superwoman. It's she's to be a model to the other women in the congregation to do the same. 1 Peter 4.9 tells all Christians... Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You're just going to kill every reward you got if you grumble while you're doing your hospitality. So he's saying this should be what every Christian is involved in. Romans 12:13 includes the phrase given to hospitality as one of the characteristics that should be true of every single believer. And so Martha was fulfilling the law and Mary would not have been praised if she was lazy and did not engage in hospitality. If she just said, oh yeah, that's not my thing, that's a Martha thing. She would have been rebuked by the Lord if she had done that because it would have been a violation of the law. Now what about sitting at Jesus' feet? It's true that many Jews felt that um, what Mary was doing was shocking. Um, Their attitude very literally would have been, why isn't she in the kitchen where she belongs? Okay, women are meant to be seen and not heard and maybe not even seen by some of those, uh, those Pharisees back then. And I have no idea if this was a minority or a majority view, but clearly a lot of the Pharisees and a lot of the rabbis that were respected at the time of Christ held to this. And so let me read you a couple quotes just to show Jesus was bucking the culture back then. Philo said, All public life with its discussions and deeds is proper for men. It is only suitable for women to live indoors and to live in retirement. Now, he was a very famous, very influential writer uh, around the, the, that time. And so he would have disapproved of Mary sitting here and partaking of those discussions. I think he probably would have been a lot quicker than Martha to rebuke her. Rabbi uh, Jose ben Yohanan, 150 years before Christ, said, Talk not much with women. So he would have rebuked Christ. You shouldn't be talking with women like that. It would, it would have been his attitude. The Mishnah, which was the oral teachings of the Pharisees uh, of Christ's day, said this, He that talks much with women brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law. So he would have said what Jesus is doing is wrong. Rabbi Eliezer said, If a man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it is as though he taught her lechery. Now, that was just a remarkably chauvinistic attitude that he had. I mean, to teach your daughter the law is like lechery. I mean, they had a very, very bad attitude. In another place, he said, it is better that the words of the law should be burned than that they should be given to a woman. Now, James Hurley, in his book, he thinks this was a pretty prevalent, common attitude at the time. I don't know if that's true or not, but clearly some of the leaders of that day definitely had this chauvinistic attitude. Here is how Rabbi Azariah viewed their role in church. The men came to synagogue to learn. The women came to hear. And so Christ had a remarkably different attitude than at least some of the Pharisees and some of the rabbis of his day. They thought that Mary should be in the kitchen, not out there discussing things with others. And even though Martha has been taught differently, we know that from the Scriptures, 
it's possible that she was taking in from the back of her mind some of the assumptions of her time. Saying, Mary, you ought to be in the kitchen. You shouldn't be out here uh, with the men. It's very possible that she took that attitude. What does the law say? Well, Deuteronomy 31, verse 12 says, it justifies Mary. It says, gather the people together, men and women and little ones and the stranger who was within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, women were doing exactly what Mary was doing. They were commanded to do that. And it's true, Proverbs 31, you look at that and you say, wow, what a Martha, incredible, all the things that that woman is doing. But you know, she was also a Mary. She was sitting at God's feet. She was reading the Scriptures. She is immersed in the Scriptures to the point where she was able to uh, uh, teach her servants and teach strangers uh, who came to her, uh, her, her door the laws of God, the Scriptures. And so uh, it, it, it was definitely something that uh, both Mary and Martha could justify from the Old Testament. It's not what they did, it's how they did it that we're looking at. It's balance. Now, let's look at one last difference between them. Martha and Mary had different views of expressing devotion to Jesus. Or another way of saying it that's been made popular by Dobson and others is they were majoring on different languages of love. Now, I try to encourage people that they should be expressing love in every language. Um, you know, gift-giving and and uh, hugs and, uh, you know, quality time words, all, all of those types of things. But it's true. Some people feel far more ministered to with one of the languages of love, and so they're much more prone to be giving it that way. And I have seen lots of people who thought that the other person was not being very loving. When they saw the different languages of love, they began to realize, wow, incredible love that uh, this person has been demonstrating to me, but they just didn't realize it at the time. Well, looking at Mary and Martha, you see this. In John 12, it speaks of Martha's devotion to Christ by putting on this banquet and serving Christ. That was devotion to Christ. It's an expression of love. Uh, Matthew 25 is quite clear about that, you know, about uh, feeding and clothing and doing all of these things, that it's devotion and, and love and service to Him. Now, we'll get to that in a bit. Mary, on the other hand, expresses her devotion to Christ by pouring perfume on Christ's feet and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, she didn't spend the whole banquet doing that, but you can see she's much more sensitive. She, her whole approach is different than Martha's approach. Now, she no doubt served food too, and I think in John 12, verse 2, the word they implies they were both involved in hospitality at some point. But Martha appears to be much more practical Mary much more emotional and aesthetic. One last little difference we can just throw in here, and that is Mary seems to have better anticipated the fact that Jesus is going to be dying soon, and I think that factors into why she's doing what she is doing. She is, she's realizing, I'm not going to have Jesus with me much more, uh, and I want to spend every minute that I can get with Jesus and so when you look at all of these differences between the two sisters, you can see how it could so easily set them up for conflict. So this sermon, in part, is uh, about appreciating the differences that are within the body of Christ so that we don't, you know, rub each other wrong. Uh, and it's also about looking at this one uh, needful thing. 
But I want to look at the minor conflict first because I think this beautifully illustrates some of the tension that some of you guys have had at work and at play, at home, and in other places. And it highlights the difference between serving Jesus in your jobs, your chores, your pleasures, and serving your jobs, chores, and pleasures as ends in themselves. If you don't learn to hear from Christ, if you don't learn how to have intimacy through the Scriptures, this is just going to be a theoretical sermon. You're going to go on about life just as you always have. And so we're going to be emphasizing it's so important to learn how to hear and to sit at His feet. Okay, look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached Him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her, to help me. I want you to notice three words. I think we had you underline the previous ones. You can circle these three words here. The first word is but at the beginning of verse 40. And this is setting up an intentional contrast here. Verse 39 says that Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word, but Martha was distracted with much serving. The but indicates Martha should have been sitting at his feet as well. Second word is the word distracted. For some reason, Martha is distracted while she's engaging in hospitality. Now, let me give you the dictionary definition for the Greek word of distracted. It means to be pulled or dragged away. What's Martha being dragged away from? She's being dragged away from Jesus, from His presence, right? And the implication of the use of this word is that Jesus wanted Martha to be doing exactly what Mary was doing here. He expected her, you know, he didn't want her to be doing the dishes by herself. He's saying, Martha, whatever it is you're fussing on, can't it just wait a little bit? Why can't you just be here with Mary? Why can't you spend some time with me? But she's feeling so pressed by all the work that needs to be done, she's being dragged away from Christ. Third word to look at is much. Her distraction was because she was caught up in much serving. Okay, she's putting on such a big production that her focus is more and more being uh, on the work rather than the one she's working for. Okay, it's on her ministry rather than the one that she is ministering to. And you know what? That can happen to every one of us. We can get so busy with our work that we begin to lose sight of the God who can sustain us and give us joy in our work and, and, uh, and, and be with us in our work. Or we can get so wrapped up in the pleasures that we're engaging in that we can, we can find ourselves forgiving, forgetting about the, the giver of those pleasures and those good gifts. How many of us use our jobs as an end in themselves? We don't have a constant awareness of His pleasure and uh, on what we're doing. We're not offering them up as a sacrifice to the Lord. Everything you do can be laying up treasures in heaven. Even the way you work. Even the way you serve your employer or you serve those who are, are working for you. Now here's something I want you to think about. Because <clears throat> people think, well, this is a ministry that's thrown my way. Satan loves to throw ministry opportunities your way that God has not given and they're perfectly legitimate uh, opportunities to serve, but he's trying to distract you with so much work, so much busyness, that uh, you're not doing what God wants you to do at that particular moment. And you might say, but there's so much, I've got to do it. There's too much work to do. Well, my response is there's always going to be more work than you're going to have hours in the day to accomplish. 
you will never be able to do all of the work that is out there. So what you need to focus on is getting done what God's priorities are within your limited resources and your limited abilities. And people say, yeah, but people are going to criticize me if I don't get this done. But where's your focus? Where's your focus on that? Let me read you Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So if Jesus is patting the seat beside him and saying, come on, Martha, just sit down beside me for a while, and you're saying, oh, no, people are going to criticize me if I don't get all of this stuff done, what you're doing is you're not pleasing Christ, you're pleasing others. Your, your, your focus, your shift of focus has gone away from where it should be. And here's the, here's the important point. God does not need your money and your labors and all of these efforts that you're going through because He could do all of them. And I've said this a number of times. With a snap of a finger, God could do it. Why does He involve us in these things? He involves us in all of these labors so that we get a chance to implement His grace, get a chance to know Him, depend upon Him, uh, to grow in our holiness. All of these things are, are Romans 8.28 events that are conforming us to the image of Christ. That's His goal. It's not to get a bunch of work done. Obviously, there is work we need to get done, but that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. And I've had to learn over the years, this has been hard for me, I've had to learn not to get distracted from the Lord by my ministry because there's always more work for a pastor to do than he can possibly get done. And you know what? Christ had exactly the same problem. Christ had more work than he could get done. He had constantly people coming to him, and there were times, good needs out here. Jesus, why are you going off into the wilderness by yourself? He's trying to escape from these people. Uh, let me give you one example. In Acts chapter 4, Peter heals a lame man. And in that passage, it says that that lame man had been laid at that gate for years, every day. That means that Jesus has walked past this lame man day after day after day and has chosen not to heal him. Why? Because God did not want Jesus healing him. He wanted Peter to heal him later. Okay? I think this is something we've got to get into our consciousness. You are not the answer to every need that is out there. Some people feel, I almost get a Messiah complex, they're just frazzled because they're trying to meet everybody's needs. Let other people handle some of those things. But you're never going to know what is the thing, the need God wants you to meet, what is the need God wants somebody else to meet if you're not sitting at Jesus' feet, if you're not learning from Him, from the Scriptures. Satan loves to bring ministry cases that God has not sent. It might be counseling, conflict resolution, or it might be all of that extra work that the boss is dumping onto your schedule. And you're thinking, I need to shepherd my family. How in the world can I do all of this work that, that this boss is dumping on me? Now, this is a wisdom issue because Jesus sometimes had to work late into the night and lose sleep. So how do we know when we're supposed to work our tail off and how do we know when we're supposed to say, no, I'm not going to do that? How do we know when we go along with what the boss is saying and say, yep, I'm going to pour my all into, into this for the next two weeks, and then I'm going to take a vacation, you know? But, or when to say, you know what, if that's your attitude, I have to quit this job because my family is more important to me than that. I don't think you can learn that unless you've learned to sit at Jesus' feet, receive his guidance, and get the discernment to make those kinds of judgment calls. And mothers constantly have little ones tugging at their apron strings. And it's so easy for them to fall into the tyranny of the urgent. 
because your kids always think their need is earth shattering. It's it's urgent. You got to meet it right now. Remember two weeks ago, we saw God was teaching us submission by sometimes answering our prayers with a no and sometimes answering our prayers with a wait. We need to teach our children the same kind of submission and for them to realize that not every need has to be met right now. Some of them can wait for a later time. But again, my point is we need to sit at Jesus' feet in order to maintain uh, that balance. And Satan's going to tempt you to say, you know, i got so much work today, I don't have time to sit at Jesus' feet. Right? I've experienced that. I have to confess that it's so easy to get that mindset. What Jesus is saying is, you don't have time not to sit at my feet. If you don't sit at my feet, you're going to suffer, your ministry will suffer, and those that you are ministering to will suffer. You see, when you neglect Christ, you're going to begin to neglect the people who are united to Christ. When you begin to be too busy for Jesus, you're going to be too busy for the people Jesus wants you to minister to. It happens all the time. Fathers love their children, and they're trying to provide for their children, but they don't spend the time with their kids. They love their wives, and so they're working, 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 trying to provide money for their wives, and their wives wish that they would spend some time with them. Okay, you, 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 you see what I'm getting at here? Um, we can be so busy that we are not spending the time Christ wants us to spend with others. And so if we're not having the time with Jesus, we're probably not going to have the time with others. And Martha's personality made it much easier for her to get distracted by the rat race. But I think it can happen to any of us. Now, what I want to do right now is I want to shift a little bit, make an application to hospitality itself, because the Martha syndrome is quite frequently seen in hospitality. You've probably witnessed this. You've gone to somebody's home and you've had a good meal, but you feel bad because you weren't able to really spend much time with the hostess. She was so busy uh, with you know, engaging in, in, in the hospitality. And um, I have a close friend up in Canada who used to be that way. Uh, she confesses now that she used to put on such a major production that she would get frazzled. In fact, it sometimes was not fun to be around her uh, when her exotic dishes didn't turn out. It's like, ooh, okay. <laughs> just, uh, the, the evening was not pleasant. And what was happening, instead of focusing on the person, she was focusing on the, the stuff she was doing for the person. And she really had a hard time enjoying her company. I believe that Christ wanted Martha not to worry about being a perfectionist in the kitchen so much and to spend a little bit more time talking with Him. Because I've come away from places sometimes, again, feeling like, wow, that was a fabulous feast. But I just wish they would have relaxed a little bit so I could have talked with them. This is one of the things I love about Edith Schaefer. You can talk to my wife. I forget the name of the book. But um, she's got a book where she, she emphasizes the simple. And actually, the, the, the wife of my pastor up in Canada was brilliant this way. She was just so good. You saw her as she was. It didn't bother her in the least. If you came in on her dirty house, uh, you, she, you just came in. You were part of her household. You, know? you just uh, felt really comfortable there. And I think her rule was, after about the second time, she just felt quite free. And uh, you coming in, she's washing dishes, here's a towel. And you'd fellowship over the dishes. But what happened is you just began to relax around her. 
she didn't have pride at stake that she had to defend. You know, oh, oh pastor, you know, Kaiser's coming over. I've got to quickly clean everything up. You saw her the way she was, and she was able to, to totally relax. And so I would encourage you not to get distracted from the main purpose of hospitality, which is the purpose. This is the huge difference between entertainment and hospitality. Entertainment is event-oriented. Hospitality is person-oriented. And it would be much better to have a simple meal once a week in a not perfectly cleaned up house every week than to put on a major production and then take three months to recuperate from it. Okay? So just relax. Relax along those lines. Now, there was another problem at work here. Martha was a take-charge type of a person. It was her real strength. It was a real plus for her ministry. And I think we need people like that who could just dive in. They take charge of things. But what happens many times is that Satan attacks us at our strongest points. He did this with David. He's done it with so many people. And because we let down our guard on our strong points. We don't think we're vulnerable there. And I think that's what happens here. Martha allowed her take-charge personality not only to determine what was best for Mary, but what was best for Christ. She, she rebukes him. Do you not care? She's in effect saying... Jesus and Mary, you don't have your priorities straight, <laughs> which is, you know, when she thought about it, she probably thought, wow, that was pretty audacious to think Christ didn't have his priorities straight. But what was happening is she was imposing her priorities upon others. Now, here's the frustration that happens with a person who has this strength. Because they take charge and they think that their priorities should be everybody else's priorities, they get frustrated when people don't cooperate. And the people they're trying to press into service get frustrated and there's friction that goes there. So sometimes these people need to ask questions and find out where people are at and see if people are willing and not be frustrated if they, another person feels this is not what God is calling them to do. There needs to be a little bit more uh, balance there. And um, some of you parents are frazzled with the amount of work that you do because you've let too many Marthas tell you what to do. And at the end of the day, when you've run out of hours to do all of the things that 20 Marthas and a pastor and a deacon have told you to do, you're so frustrated. You may be even resentful of what some of the people have done, but you've said yes, 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 yes. And then you get resentful. And I'm still going to be asking some of you to do things, but you have got to evaluate, is this really what God wants me to do with my gifts? How are you going to discern that? Here's one of my recommendations. Every day... Start the first five minutes with a pep talk to yourself. P-E-P, prayer, praying, Lord, give me wisdom that I might have the discernment to redeem the time, that redeem the, the day's uh, time. How is it worded in Ephesians? Redeem the time knowing the days are evil. But asking God, give me wisdom. Then if E is evaluate your past day and say, is there any way I could improve what I did yesterday? And what are the things that I did not get done? Where should they be placed in the next week? And then planning out the, the rest of this day. And I think one hour a week you ought to have a pep time as well uh, for upcoming weeks and months. But every day you ought to at least have five minutes of a pep talk with yourself and asking God to give you the discernment to make the decisions that need to be made. Now there's one last factor in this passage I want to pull out. Oh, before I do that, let me just make another comment some people use the excuse, but this is a righteous thing that I am doing. And I want you to notice, Mary has ceased doing one righteous thing, hospitality, 
so that she can engage in another righteous thing, spending time with Jesus. We're always having to have this, this balance of stopping one good thing to do another good thing. So it's not a good enough excuse to say this is a righteous deed, this is what God has commanded us to do. You've got to take in the whole scope of what God's commands are and, and, and see those commands linking up together. But let's go to this last factor. And I, I'm bringing this up because I know a number of you have had the same tendencies I've had of being workaholics. And I don't know if Martha was a workaholic, but she sure seems like Mary ought to be doing a lot more work than she is rather than being ministered to. And some people have a hard, hard time letting others minister to them. They're quite willing to work their tails off, but letting other people minister to them, that's just very, very hard. There was a mother who was impressing on her son the importance of not being selfish. And she said, son, we've been put in this world to serve others. He thought for a moment, he says, well, what are the others here for? (laughs) I mean, he, he figured if, we're here to serve others. <clears throat> well, that means that others who are also here to serve others need to be serving me sometime. just seemed logical. But some people really struggle with that, struggle with the, the idea that others can serve me. Did you realize that Jesus needed to be ministered to? He's not just God. He was fully human. He had human needs. In Matthew 4.11, it speaks of angels ministering to His needs. Mark 15.41 speaks of women ministering to his needs. Luke 8, 3 speaks of women who provided for Jesus out of their substance. So Jesus took vacations. He went into homes to eat. He was tired. In John chapter 12, Mary ministers powerfully to Jesus emotionally. He had emotional needs. And he recognizes, he acknowledges that. Now think of this. If Christ needed to be ministered to, how much more so do you? I believe Martha was refusing to be ministered to. You know what Jesus said to Peter when he refused to let Peter wash his feet? Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Wow. And of course, Peter overreacts. Okay, give me a whole bath then, Lord. (laughs) And he said, no, no, your feet is good enough. But the point is, if you want to have a part with Jesus... You need to, according to that verse, you need to let him minister to you sometimes. But the implication also is you need to allow Jesus to minister to you through the lives of others. If you refuse to let others minister in your lives, you are refusing the ministry of Jesus. That's the implication of Matthew 25. Because inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And as much as you have not done it, you know, you've not done it to me. That means that as we minister to each other, it's Christ ministering to, to people, right? So I think we need to not be like, like uh, Peter and saying, you will never wash my feet. Sometimes it's a pride issue. I can't let others serve me, then I might be beholden to them. But God wants us interdependent. Okay, I want to end by reemphasizing the answer to the question, what is the one thing needful to give balance to our jobs? And our pleasures. Verse 42, one thing is needed. Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken from her. And this is the phrase that's aroused so much difference of opinion. What's that one thing? Well, it's not one bowl of soup. It's not uh, the best piece of food. It's uh, not studying God's Word in a secluded monastery or Jesus would not have been spiritual. He would not have had that one thing. You could study the Bible 24 hours a day. Of course, you'd you'd be constantly falling asleep, but 
you could, you could study 24 hours a day and you would be missing this one thing because you would not have the balance He wants you to have. Here is what you need 24 hours a day. And you can call it different things. You can call it living quorum Deo. That's Latin for living before the face of God. Or you can call it intimacy with Christ or having an eye looking to the uh, desires of, of, of Jesus in any given situation. Having a steward's heart. You can call it discipleship. Uh, in verse 39, sat at Jesus' feet is a technical phrase for a disciple. But what this one thing needed is, is to have Jesus as your all in all. Having His priorities becoming your priorities. When He wants you to work, you're going to work. When He wants you to rest, you're going to rest. And there are maybe times in life where you're going to spend long times in devotions just to be able to sustain yourself. And there are going to be other times where you're going to be working your tail off and Christ is going to want you to have done that. But only Christ will give you the balance that you need. And so I urge you to sit at Jesus' feet, see everything that you do as a stewardship trust, be Christ-centered, live your life quorum Deo. And if you do, everything in your life will glorify the Lord. Now, I would, um, anybody that wants to have some exercises, you can work with your kids to teach them intimacy. This is probably one of the hardest things. And I think it can only, it can't be just taught. It needs to be modeled. You need to do it with your children. But I can send you an email that gives about 20 different exercises that teach you how to learn from Christ through the Scriptures. And I think you'll profit from it. But my admonition to you is to daily sit at Jesus' feet. Let's pray. Father God, we come to You realizing afresh how much we need Your wisdom, how much we need Your presence and Your empowering in our lives. Uh, we want this one needed thing in our lives. We want this kind of balance. And Father, even though this is stuff that I have talked about with uh, this congregation before, uh, with Peter, I do not want to uh, be recalcitrant uh, and reminding this congregation continually of their need to sit at Jesus' feet. And I pray that we would l learn this so well that we would be able to pass it on to our children and they to their children. Father, I pray that You would fill our hearts full to overflowing, even as Jesus did, with the, the, the spirit of wisdom and of counsel and uh, the spirit of, of power and uh, that uh, we would come from this place determined uh, to put aside the imbalances that so frequently capture our lives. May you be glorified in the responses that we have to this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen.